Father, um, that last song just made me think about how we pay good money to, to go see things that will awe us, uh, to go on trips to the Grand Canyon or to move to a place that is out, outside of the city into the country so that we can have a clear view of the night sky and be in awe of all the stars that we see. Lord, when we get to glory and we see Christ face to face and we participate in his rule over the new heavens and the new earth, uh, there will never be a moment when we are not in awe. We will be in a state of perpetual amazement at who Jesus is and at the privilege that we have of serving him. And Lord, we'll spend our money here on earth to, to, to see a sight that will come and go. Uh, Lord, how much more should we leave behind all that we have so that we may gain Christ and have the privilege to be in awe of him forever and ever. So Lord, help us to think on that. Help us to think about our Savior and the kind of Savior that he is so that we will be more than willing to turn away from what this world can give us so that we may have Christ himself and all that we have in him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's open our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're taking a, a big chunk of it uh, to finish out the chapter. We're looking at verses 26 to 40. So I'm not going to read it for us. We'll just work our way through it as we go along. And because we have a lot to get through, I don't have an introduction. I just have to get right to it. Um, this passage uh, has plenty of controversy in it, so I don't need to give you a spicy introduction uh, to try to catch your attention. Um, I think the passage will do that for me. Um, be praying for me. It's a tricky passage. First Corinthians seems to have a lot of those, so um, we need the Lord's help as we work through it together. So let's look at verse 26. We're splitting this message up into four sections just to help track along with what Paul is saying. And in verse 26, we see Paul command us to do all things for edification. Paul asks in verse 26 of chapter 14, what is the outcome then, brethren? That is, how should the Corinthians conduct themselves in light of what Paul has presented about the gifts of prophecy and tongues throughout the course of this 14th chapter. Paul has clearly made the case in this chapter that in order for the gift of tongues in particular to be beneficial to the church, it needs to be translated because the only kind of messages that can build up the church are messages that can be understood by that church. The only kind of message we saw last week that can lead an unbeliever to Jesus Christ is an understandable message. So Paul says in verse 26, when you assemble, that is when you come together as a church to worship the Lord, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Whenever they come ready to exercise their spiritual gift, Paul wants them to have one goal in mind, that they will build up the church with that gift. Their gifts are not to be used on themselves, 
to exalt themselves. The gifts are to be used to build up others in their faith in Christ. And the only way that that can happen is if those messages are understandable to the congregation. I asked a couple of messages ago what our goal should be here today as believers when we come together on the Lord's Day to worship. What should we be hoping to accomplish? Is it to make much of ourselves or is it to make much of Jesus Christ and seek to build each other up in our love for the Lord? We must use our giftedness toward that end to build one another up, to edify each other. So Paul says, do all things. Use your gifts for the edification of the church. And then he begins through the rest of the passage to show in particular those who speak in tongues and those who prophesy how they can use their gifts to do just that. And he begins by specifically addressing those with the gift of tongues. In verse 27, Paul says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. Right off the bat in that verse, we see that Paul rules out any model of church practice that resembles the Wild West. No church is to resemble the Wild West. And if you have seen a John Wayne Western movie or you've read a Louis L'Amour Western novel, you know what I mean by the Wild West. They tell stories that describe the American frontier as a place where the law is loosely enforced and people make up their own laws and they take justice into their own hands just to survive. At least that's how John Wayne and Louis L'Amour would tell it. But apparently the church in Corinth was functioning to some degree like that. People were practicing their gifts however they saw fit without regard to order in the church. But that's not what the church is supposed to look like. It's not a free-for-all. And that also applied to the gifts of tongues, tongue-speaking. It was not to be this no-holds-barred, every-man-for-himself, chaos of noise as multiple people spoke in foreign tongues all at the same time and without interpreting it. That's not how the gift was to be used. Paul says, if you're going to have tongue speaking in your service, it should be limited to only a couple people. And they must take turns rather than speak all at once. And someone must be present who can translate what is said so that the congregation can understand. Now, what if that last condition is not met, that there's no translator present? Verse 28, Paul says, But if there is no interpreter or translator, he, that is the tongue speaker, must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there was no one present who would be able to translate the tongue speaker's message into a common language for the benefit of the whole church, Paul's instruction was simple. He must be quiet. He must speak to himself and to God. If his tongue is a praise or a prayer, he can still direct that to God, but it must be silently. He can still be built up personally by the truths he utters in his own mind as he's praying and praising the Lord in silence, but it must be in silence so as not to hinder the edification of the whole church. 
Now, this is a little bit like what you might experience in Sunday school or a Bible study or even here in corporate worship. There may be times as the teaching is going along that a truth or an insight pops into your head, but because it's not relevant to what is being taught or because it might not be appropriate to share at the time or because it might take up too much time or because you don't think it will really serve to edify everyone, what do you do? Hopefully, you be quiet and you keep it to yourself. You thank God for it. You are built up by it. But for the sake of those present, you just you stay quiet. There are times to speak and there are times not to speak. And we each need to pay attention to the wise instruction of Scripture to help us discern what is going to be best for the whole body in the use of our gifts. Now, I'm just saying that Sunday school example is an analogy to this passage. I'm not suggesting that the insights that do pop into our heads in this day and age are prophetic, because they're not. I'm just saying that though you and I don't have this specific gift that Paul is talking about here, we can still understand the reasoning behind it. It makes sense. Though we, as I understand the scriptures, are not experiencing these particular gifts today, tongue-speaking and prophecy, it doesn't mean that this chapter has no relevant application to our lives as believers today. It does, and so we have to pay attention to it. And again, you may disagree with my position on these gifts, and as long as you are simply and honestly striving to go where the scriptures take you, I, I can respect that. But we should always be conscious of what we say, and we should think about whether or not what I'm going to say is going to actually be helpful to people. Is it going to actually build up people or not? Is it just going to build up myself? If it's just going to build up myself, I better just be quiet. So that's his instructions to the tongue speaker. Verses 29 through 35 is going to take up the bulk of our time. And here's where all the controversy is crammed into this passage here. Paul gives instruction to the prophets in the church congregation. He is going to show them how to prophesy for the edification of the church instead of for self. Verse 29, Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. This shows us that even for prophets, there were restrictions. They were not to do as they pleased. Apparently, like with tongue speakers, there was to be a limit as to how many prophets could take time to speak at a worship service. And not only that, but these prophets were to submit their prophecies to the church for judgment. Now, just to refresh our memories, what is a prophet? A true prophet is someone who delivered God's inerrant and infallible word to his people. New Testament prophets, as we've seen already in previous messages, they were not some kind of lesser quality prophet than the prophets of the Old Testament. So if a New Testament prophet was, like the Old Testament prophets, a speaker of the inerrant word of God, why was he to subject his message to the judgment of the church? That's a question that we need to answer. And the answer is, that's how it's always been. Even in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies were subject to the judgment of those who heard them. 
Deuteronomy 18 tells the people of God that they need to see whether or not the prophet's message is actually going to come true. And if it doesn't, they're not to listen to him. Deuteronomy 13, the people were to examine the doctrine of the prophet that he was giving out. And if it led them away from the one true God, they were to reject him. He was to die. It's no different when we get to the New Testament. If you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's Paul's instruction. Also turn to 1 John chapter 4. We get a similar command from the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That is the reason why we are to examine what we hear, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 29, Paul commands that the others in the church pass judgment on the prophet's words. But it's not because New Testament prophets sometimes got things wrong. It's because, as John said, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And the church was to constantly be on guard against that. That is why they were to constantly be judging what they were hearing. Applying this to myself as a pastor, I am not a prophet. I do not receive new revelation. I do not speak the inerrant word of God. The only way I speak inerrant, the inerrant word of God to you is if I'm reading this book out loud to you. That's the only way I can speak the inerrant word of God to you. Therefore, how much more should I be willing to subject what I teach to the church? If I don't speak the infallible word of God, how much more should I submit this to you to gaze look over and compare with what you see in the scriptures. That's why I frequently exhort you to be what? Bereans, that's right, to check out what I say, to never take what I say at face value. Why not? Because though, as I understand the scriptures, there are no true prophets today, there are plenty of what? False prophets false teachers, and they are always seeking to creep in to the church. So you and I, even today, need to constantly be on our guard against that. Verse 30, Paul goes on. He says, but if a revelation is made to another, another prophet who is seated, the first one, the one who was speaking already, must keep silent. He's telling us that one prophet could not dominate the whole church service if God chose to reveal something to another prophet. 
In such a case, the first prophet, he needed to be quiet so that the other prophet could speak. Again, we have no prophets here in this church, but applying this principle to teachers here in New Woodstock Community Church, we have multiple opportunities for other teachers in the church to address God's people. I'm not the only teacher. We have other teachers in Sunday school, Bible studies, and then when my son infects me with some disease and I'm not here, we have some other teacher preaching the Word of God. When we as elders, as teachers in the church, when we find a church member who its apparent has been also given the gift of teaching, it's important for us to try to nurture that in that individual and to begin to give them opportunities to teach so that God's people can reap the benefits of that gifting. No one man has all the insights that God's people need to hear. It's good to have multiple teachers who can give space to one another to instruct God's people so that God's people can get all that God wants them to get from the Word of God. In verses 31 to 32, Paul gives two kinds of reasons, two kinds of reasons why this kind of order is important in the life of the church. The first is of a practical nature, and we see this in verses 31 to 32. It's the first kind of reason that is of a practical nature. Look at what he says in those two verses. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, and all may be exhorted, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. No one prophet was to dominate the time. Due to the partial nature of the gifts, no one prophet was going to be able to give to the church everything that the church needed to hear. We saw this already in chapter 13, verse 9. Do you remember how Paul described the gifts in chapter 13, verse 9, he said, For we know in what? Part. And we prophesy in part. So no one prophet was going to tell everyone everything that they needed to hear. The prophets needed to give space to one another to speak. And they were not to all speak at the same time. What happens when you're sitting at a dinner table and you have two outspoken people and they try to both talk at the same time, talking about two different things. What ends up happening? You don't hear, you don't understand what either one of them said. There's more is being said, but less is being understood, right? You've got to have one person at a time talking so that anybody can understand what is being said. The prophecy would be wasted if you had multiple prophets speaking at the same time. It would do nobody any good. Therefore, they were to take turns so that all could learn and all could be exhorted. The other practical reason, we're still on that first kind of reason, practical reason. The other practical reason for this order among the prophets we see in verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Again, church is not the Wild West with everyone doing whatever they please uncontrollably, a prophet in the exercise of his spiritual gift, that's what Paul means when he says the spirits of the prophets. He's talking about their exercise of their spiritual gift. 
A prophet in the exercise of his spiritual gift was not out of control. He was not out of control. When the Holy Spirit granted a message to a prophet, it's not like that prophet was forced to begin just blurting out what the Holy Spirit told him to say irresistibly. It's not like he's overcome and he just spews it out of his mouth and there's nothing he can do about it. That's why Paul says in verse 31, he says what? He says, for you can. You are able to what? Prophesy one by one. It's within your ability to take turns. You're not being forced to all talk all at the same time. They had the ability to wait for one another and to keep silent if necessary. This helps us understand that the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongue speaking were not out-of-body experiences where the Holy Spirit possessed someone like a demon possesses someone and you are forced to, against your will, do whatever that Spirit wants you to do. That's not what happens when the Holy Spirit enables someone to minister with a certain gift. No, the exercise of these gifts was fully under the control of the one gifted. What we see in certain quote-unquote churches where people are falling over, rolling around in the aisles, laughing uncontrollably, that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And to attribute that kind of behavior to the Holy Spirit is blasphemous. That is not what the Holy Spirit does. That is something else. It's not God the Holy Spirit. The second kind of reason, that, that, that idea about the Holy Spirit not taking control and forcing you to speak, that leads us to the second kind of reason that Paul gives for order in the church. And it's a theological reason. A theological reason. We see it in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And this is the most important reason why our worship of God is to be orderly. It's because our God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. To have a worship service that is chaotic communicates something about God that is not true. To have a worship service that is full of disorder communicates that our God has disorder in him. And that is false. That's not true. Paul says that this theological undergirding principle that God is not a God of confusion but of peace, he says that this is true where? In all the churches of the saints. Some versions connect that phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, with the next verse instead of with this verse. Why the confusion there? It's because in the original Greek documents, there was no punctuation. There were no spaces between words. It was just every word and every letter of every word was just smushed together and just strung along in one line. And so to be able to tell where one sentence ended and another one began, it was entirely dependent on what the context was. So that's why there's, it's a little bit of ambivalence of knowing where that phrase fits. But I'm of the opinion that it belongs with this verse. That God is 
a God of order in all the churches of the saints. God doesn't change from church to church. Change in geography does not result in a change in the God who is worshipped in that church. There's no place on this planet where a church is permitted to become disorderly in their worship of God. There's no church that can say, well, you know, this disorderliness, it's just a part of our culture. That's not an excuse for the worship of the church to become disorderly. There's no church that can say, well, you know, the Lord seems to really bless our spontaneous, free-flowing, chaotic, never-know-what's-going-to-happen kind of church service. No, God's word is our rule, right? God's word tells us that is not how God wants the worship of himself to go on in the church. And who's the worship master? It's God. We're here for him. So if he says he wants it this way, we better give it to him how? That way. In verses 34 to 35, Paul turns to address women in the congregation. He did this back in chapter 11. We saw where he was speaking to the way women were dressing during the corporate worship of God. Here, Paul seems to be addressing the lady's conduct surrounding the prophetic ministry that was taking place during corporate worship. How do I know he's, still, he's talking to women still in a prophetic context? Well, a couple reasons. The first and most obvious reason is because his instruction to the women immediately follows his instructions to the prophets. And when we come to verses 36 to 38, which is after Paul speaks to the women, Paul is still addressing those who consider themselves to be prophets. So it's still the same topic. Paul is not switching topics here as far as I can tell. The second reason why I think Paul is addressing women within that prophetic vein of thinking is because Paul uses the same vocabulary in addressing women that he used in addressing the prophets. For example, look at verse 31. Paul says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn. And then in verse 35, when he's talking to women, he says, regarding women, if they desire to learn. Same word, anything. Another example, verse 32, Paul said, that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That is, prophets were in control of the gift that they were using. And in verse 34, Paul says that the women are to subject themselves. Same word. And just as a sideline, women are to subject themselves. It's not someone, you know, forcing them to take a certain position, Paul is saying women are to subject themselves, like the prophets are to be in control of themselves, so the women are to be in control of themselves and not become disruptive in the service. In verse 33, following Paul's theological reason for order in the prophetic ministry, Paul says that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. And in verse 34, we see the same wording. Paul says that the women are to keep silent in the churches. So all of this suggests that he's still on the same topic here. He's just making application of the prophetic teaching he's been given. He's making application specifically 
to the ladies now. It's being given within the context of his instructions about carrying out prophetic ministry in the church. And that's important to keep in mind for us to understand what exactly Paul is saying in verses 34 and 35. What does Paul say? Now, this is the controversial part. What does he say in verse 34? The women are to keep silent in the church. Just having the gall to read that verse would probably get me kicked out of most liberal churches. But that's what the Bible says. But before we get our hackles raised at what Paul says, let me ask you this. In this passage, are the women the only ones that God has given a command to keep silent to? No. Verse 28. He commanded the tongue speaker to what? Keep silent under a certain condition. And what was that condition? If there was no interpreter, no translator. He also commanded the prophet in verse 30 to keep silent. If what? If a revelation was made to another prophet. So there are certain conditions under which everyone, whether man or woman, is to keep silent. It's not something that only the ladies are to do. Now, the circumstances are different, but there are still times when everyone is to keep silent. So let's look at the circumstances in which, under which the women are to keep silent. Why does Paul command the women to keep silent? He gives us a reason in verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, what does Paul mean here? Does he mean that a sound must not leave a woman's lips from the time she walks through the church's doors until the time she leaves the doors? Can she not sing in worship? Can she not pray out loud? Can she not ask how someone is doing? Can she not teach the children or teach the other ladies? Can she not ask for prayer during the church's prayer time? Well, notice carefully what Paul says here. He pits the woman's speaking against the woman's subjecting herself. He says, they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves. That right there tells us that when Paul says women are not permitted to speak, the kind of speech that he has in mind is the kind of speech that usurps authority, the kind of speech that goes against her subjecting herself. That's the kind of speech that a woman is not permitted to say. So any speech of a woman that does not usurp authority, like singing and praying and teaching the kids, etc., that kind of speech is permitted because that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about that kind of speech. In fact, back in chapter 11, turn back there for a moment, Paul has already assumed that women will be heard in the worship of the church. Chapter 11, verse 4, he says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. What is Paul rebuking there? He's not rebuking the woman's 
praying or prophesying, he's rebuking her for doing so with her head uncovered. That is, coming out from under the submission to her husband. So, when we come to chapter 14 and we say, we see Paul say, a woman is not permitted to speak, he's not saying not permitted to speak under any circumstances. He's not commanding women to stay totally silent when they come into the church. If so, then he's contradicting himself. And we know what about Scripture? There's no what in the Scriptures. Contradictions. So that tells us i got to do a little more work to understand what Paul is saying because I'm missing something. So I need to dig a little more to see what the Bible's saying. So to get a little more clarity on what exactly Paul is prohibiting Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 11 and 12. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, Paul says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There we see that Paul is prohibiting women from what? From teaching men, from telling men in the church what to do as it relates to their walk with the Lord. Why does Paul prohibit that? Is it just a cultural thing? Is Paul some kind of male chauvinist with some kind of sick prejudice against women? No. He tells us in verse 13, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul's command to the woman to not teach men has nothing to do with some kind of prejudice against women. It has everything to do with the order of creation. And because Paul ties that command to the order of creation, which precedes culture, we cannot say that this is just a cultural thing in Paul's day and that, therefore, we can just not follow that anymore. No, the order of creation transcends culture. Therefore, the church is still to observe this command today. And that's why in this church we do not have women elders. Now, it is not because women are not capable of teaching. There are plenty of women more capable of teaching and speaking than any of the elders in this church. It's also not because men can find no benefit from something that a woman teaches. That has literally nothing to do with the prohibition. For example, my wife has benefited me greatly by her insights. Another example, I enjoy listening to Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth on WMHR. I'm greatly edified when I listen to what she's teaching. She runs a teaching ministry for women, and she's a very faithful handler of the Word of God from everything I can tell and have heard. She's a teacher who's not attempting to exercise authority over men. Her material is specifically addressed toward ladies. Yet, I, a man, learn a lot when I listen, if she happens to be on the radio. 
In the book of Acts, we do not see the up-and-coming, or we do see the up-and-coming teacher Apollos benefiting from who? When he's a little confused. From Aquila and Priscilla, both of them. And most times later in Scripture when we see that couple, Aquila and Priscilla mentioned, whose name is mentioned first? Priscilla's name. That may suggest that she was more prominent, more impactful, more gifted than Aquila. So this prohibition to not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church, it has nothing to do with ability or godliness. It has everything to do with the order that God established in creation and the order that he wants for his church. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9, Paul said there, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Remember when God created Adam and he saw Adam standing there alone? He said, that is not good. And so he made woman. Why? To be what? A helpmeet for Adam. That was the purpose of God in creating woman in filling out the image of God and mankind. And part of being a helpmeet is to make yourself subject to the one you're what? Helping. Back in chapter 14, it is this same order of creation that Paul is referring to. Verse 34 again. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. What part of the law is Paul referring to? What part of the law has he referred to any time he's been addressing this subject? He's, he refers to the first book of the law, Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, where the order of creation is revealed to us. Now, a question rises at this point. We saw in chapter 11 that Paul assumes that women are involved in prophesying in corporate worship. How is it that a woman can prophesy on one hand, but on the other hand not exercise authority over a man? How do those things fit together? Well, remember what Paul specifically prohibited in 1 Timothy. He prohibited women from what? Teaching. Teaching is not identical to prophecy. When you teach, you are explaining to someone what the Word of God means and you are applying it to their lives, telling them how they need to conform their lives to it. Prophecy, on the other hand, in and of itself is simply delivering the Word of God. It does not necessarily involve the woman explaining that Word of God and commanding men to obey that Word of God. Maybe an analogy will be helpful here. In Sunday school, we have the women as well as the men reading Scripture during class. When a woman in Sunday school is simply reading the Word of God, delivering it in that way, she's not exercising authority. I would say that even when she shares an insight from that Scripture and answers questions, but does so recognizing her position under the authority of the one who is teaching, she's not exercising authority. But when Owen or Barney 
or Eric in the position of teacher takes that scripture and explains that scripture and then applies it to the class saying you need to live this way in accordance with that scripture, they are exercising authority. So it seems that a woman teaching a man in the church necessarily involves her exercising authority over that man, which is why it's prohibited. Whereas a woman prophesying in the church, simply delivering the word of God without explaining and applying it, did not necessarily involve that exercise of authority. This could possibly be why a woman prophesying in a mixed assembly was allowed, whereas a woman teaching in a mixed assembly was not allowed. There may be other explanations I have not thought of. So, those scriptural cross-references that we looked at indicate that when Paul commands women to keep silent, he's likely referring to their exercising authority over men. That's the kind of speech he's prohibiting. Any kind of speech that exercises authority over a man, that's what Paul is saying, no, be quiet about that. And the context of this passage seems to confirm this interpretation. Look at verse 35 in chapter 14. Paul says, if they desire, they, the women, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now what's he saying there? Do we really think he's saying, I want women to check their brains at the door before they come into the room? No, that is not, clearly that is not what he's saying. If we read anything else of what Paul writes, he doesn't want anybody checking their brains at the door and not learning. That's not what he's saying. Clearly that's not what he's saying. This verse is difficult to understand because we're not given all the information. We're listening on one side of the conversation. We don't know all that was happening. But this statement, if a woman desires to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. This statement seems to be parallel to what Paul says up in verse 29. What did he say in verse 29? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Now, how do I figure, how is that parallel to a woman wanting to learn and asking her husband at home? Well, if you look carefully, and again, this is where you need to gird up the loins of your mind and track with me, otherwise you'll get lost. When you look carefully at verses 29 through 35, and you notice different things that Paul repeats throughout that passage, Paul seems to have written that passage in a chiasm, new word, chiasm. What is a chiasm? Well, a chiasm is when an author says a string of specific words or thoughts in one order, and then he repeats those same words or thoughts in a reverse order. So he says similar things twice, but he says them in a reverse order. And usually an author does that to emphasize what is in the middle of that phrasing. For example, look up here. A big red dog ate my homework. My homework was eaten by a dog red and big. I said the same thing, but in a reverse order. We see this a lot in Scripture. And what was the 
part I was emphasizing that my homework was eaten. It was right in the middle of that reverse statement. The statement leading up to it and the statement flowing from it referred to my dog or my homework being eaten. Now, what about what we see in Paul's writing here in this passage? Well, the middle of the chiasm is the phrase, in the churches. In the churches. Look at verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then look at the phrase right next to it in verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches. Now, the second parallelism out from that involves the word subject. Look at verse 32, which occurs before the phrase in the churches. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Then look down at verse 34. A little later, the women are said to subject themselves. Same word. So we have two two parallels that have occurred already. The next set out is the repetition of the word learn. Verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn. And verse 35, if the women desire to learn. And then the last outermost repetition of that crisscrossing statement, verse 29, let the others pass judgment. And verse 35, Let the women ask their own husbands at home. So you have this pattern. Paul says, judging, look up here for a moment. Paul says, judging, learning, being subject in the churches. And then addressing women, he covers in the churches, being subject, learning, asking questions. I probably lost half the room, but I had to give it a go. So, given the prophetic context in which Paul is writing to these women, and given the pattern in which Paul is writing in this passage, what the ladies are envisioned as asking their husbands at home is likely a critical question about a prophecy that was given. When prophecies were given, those prophecies were subject to judgment by those in the church, right? Well, for a woman to cast judgment on a prophecy in public, a man's prophecy, during the corporate worship of the church, that would have been an exercise of authority over that man. And apparently this was going on in the church at Corinth, and it was inappropriate because it at times involved a woman exercising authority over a man, maybe even her own husband. You can picture a husband giving a prophetic utterance in the church and his wife saying, oh, honey, I don't think so. I think you are a false prophet. Now, if a woman had a judicial question over a prophecy that was given, doing so right in the middle of corporate worship would have been inappropriate because it would involve the woman coming out from under the authority of her husband in order to call a prophecy into question. Paul says it would be better for her more seemly, more appropriate for her to ask her husband about it when they got home. Now that implied there is a challenge to husbands. Do you know this book enough to answer your wife's questions about something that she didn't feel she could ask in church because it might have been disruptive? 
She had a problem with what the pastor said, and she has a question for you. Do you know this book enough to answer her question? And if you don't, you had better get to work so that you can serve your wife in that way. That seems to be the condition under which a woman was to keep silent in the church. Just as there were certain conditions for a tongue speaker and a prophet to keep quiet, so there were conditions under which a woman was to keep silent. And again, it has everything to do with the order of worship. It's got nothing to do with women or men being better than one another. It has nothing to do with competition. It has everything to do with the order that God wants in his church so that he is worshipped in an orderly manner. That brings us to the last set of verses in verse, verses 36 to 40. And I title this, this section with the command that Paul gives in verse 40, where he calls us to do all things properly and orderly. This whole passage is bracketed. In verse 26, we were commanded to do all things for the edification of the church. And in this, the end of this passage, the other bracket is do all things properly and orderly. And I'm going to move very quickly through these last several verses. Verse 36, Paul says, Was it from you that the word of God first came forth? Or has it come to you only? Paul now begins to more sharply rebuke the spiritual pride of these believers. And it's here that we see that the instruction that Paul has been giving throughout this chapter was not simply instructive. He wasn't just giving them hints about what to do. It was corrective. They were doing something wrong, and so he had to write this chapter to correct what they were doing wrong. They were practicing these gifts wrongly due to their arrogance. In making up their own rules for practicing the spiritual gifts, they were acting like they were the only church on earth. They only answered to themselves. They acted like they were the originators of the word of God and like they were the sole recipients as prophets of the word of God. So verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. That is a rebuke to their pride. We've seen Paul talk like this before in this letter. Go back to chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says something very similar. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Then chapter 8 and verse 2, Paul says the same sort of thing. Chapter 8, verse 2, if anyone supposes or if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. There we saw that these Corinthians thought they were so wise. They thought they were so knowledgeable when they actually were not. Here, in chapter 14, when Paul says, if um, anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, it is indicated that they think they are so spiritual, that they are the prophets of prophets. And Paul says, he's kind of playing off of their arrogance and their claims. He says, if you really are prophets, 
And if you're really as spiritual as you think you are, then you ought to be able to recognize that what I'm saying to you in chapter 14 and chapter 13 and chapter 12 comes straight from the Lord. If you're really a prophet, you should get this. Someone who claims to be a prophet or to be spiritual, but who rejects Paul's words in this chapter show themselves to be nothing of the sort. And so Paul says in verse 38, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Or if anyone ignores this, he is ignored. The word there is agnaeo. It means to be without knowledge. And it harkens back all the way to chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul gave the purpose for what he was going to write in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant, agnaeo, or unaware. Same word as chapter 14, verse 38. Paul says, If anyone ignores this, he is ignored. He seems to be saying that after all he's written about the spiritual gifts in these three chapters, if someone can sit there and listen to all he's said in these three chapters and still act like they are ignorant of what Paul is calling them to do and still go their merry way, practicing the gifts however they like, it's clear that their ignorance is willful and they are not to be listened to anymore. And then in verses 39 to 40, Paul sums up everything he said in this chapter. He says, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. I'm going to be honest and clear with you guys. If someone were to stand up in the middle of our service and say, Thus says the Lord. Unless they're going to be reading scripture right after that, the elders are going to lovingly cut that person off. Or if someone stands up in the middle of service and begins speaking gibberish, the elders are going to lovingly cut that person off. You may say, well, Josh, then you're disobeying this clear command. It says, Desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. You are forbidding gifts that Scripture commands you not to forbid. You are going against God. Well, my response to that is this. We do not forbid the true gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues in this church. What we forbid are the counterfeits of the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. We forbid the confusion and the disorder that those counterfeits inject into the worship of the God of peace. And if you're wondering why I'm calling counterfeit what is claimed today to be prophecy and tongue speaking, I refer you to what I've already said about the matter. I can't re-preach it to you. Now, if you sincerely think that you do have those gifts and you desire for the good of the church to practice those gifts, the elders would be happy to sit down with you and lovingly and gently discuss it with you and compare what you're experiencing to what the Word of God says to see if you really are experiencing the true gift or not. 
We can't just wing it here. We can't just let someone stand up and hope that they really are what they say they are. We will have to answer to God for how the worship of his name was conducted in his church. It's not our church. And so we take that very seriously. Paul says, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And so we, elders, we have to do our due diligence. Let's pray.